The countdown has begun. From May 14th to 16th, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Qatar Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections, gain unique insights and uncover valuable opportunities in one of the world's most rapidly rising regions. Request your invite for this exclusive event at QatarEconomicForum.com. Well, Elon Musk is now the richest person on the planet. More than half the satellites in space are owned and controlled by one man. Starting his own artificial intelligence company. Well, he's a legitimate super genius. Legitimate. He says he's always voted for Democrats, but this year it will be different. He'll vote Republican. There is a reason the U.S. government is so reliant on him. Elon Musk is a scam artist and he's done nothing. Anything he does yeah. is fascinating to yeah. people. Welcome to Elon Inc., where we discuss Elon Musk's vast corporate empire, his latest gambits and antics, and how to make sense of it all. I'm your host, David Papadopoulos. The news is coming fast and furious in the Elonverse. Last night, Elon announced that Neuralink had successfully implanted a chip into a human. Big news, clearly, but just how excited or terrified should we be? Meanwhile, over at X, the team had a strange response to deepfake porn images of Taylor Swift that had gone viral on the platform. They made it impossible to search for her at all. Oh, and Tesla earnings came and went, and the stock market gave Elon a big thumbs down. To talk about this, I'm sitting here in the studio with Max Chafkin, senior reporter at Bloomberg Businessweek. Hello, Max. Hey. You missed me, Max. While I, was I did. It's so good to see you, David. Great. Later, we'll be joined by Kurt Wagner and Dana Hall to talk about X and Tesla, respectively. But first, we welcome Sarah McBride to the show. Hello, Sarah. Hello. Sarah is Bloomberg's Neuralink reporter and will help guide us through this cerebral quantum leap. So, Sarah, what do we actually know here? What happened? A chip went in. The patient survived. What else do we know? Well, in his tweet yesterday, Elon said that signals were working in the patient's brain, that neurons were firing or words to that effect, which is great, but it would have been terrible news had that not been the case. And what exactly does neurons firing, what, what is that for, for the lay people out there like me and Max, what does that mean? In his post um, yesterday, Elon wrote that initial results showed promising neuron spike detection. And all that means is that there are 100 billion neurons almost in the average human brain. And so the neurons, which are the cells of the brain that are near this device, are working. They're, when a neuron works, you can tell because it kind of activates at the end. There's a tiny electrical signal. So that's what they're picking up with the device as after it got implanted on Sunday. That's pretty encouraging. I mean, uh, hard to know exactly how much to read into it, but certainly positive for signs. The patient survived. Right. Doesn't mean that the device is working. It, it means that it didn't destroy anything in the patient's brain and probably a few days or weeks down the line, then they'll see if it can actually result in the patient being able to, for example, move a cursor on a computer outside 
outside their body. Okay, so we don't know that yet. We're not there yet. We don't know that yet. Not even close. <laughs> not even close. I mean, right. <laughs> sorry, not to be the wet blanket, but like, I think we need to approach the claims being made here with some skepticism. First of all, it's Elon Musk we're talking about. He's a guy who tends to present, you know, let's just say like the rosiest possible version of any prospective technology. And this is a safety trial. It's not an efficacy trial. This is the point here is mm. to put this in a few people's brains and see if anything bad happens to them. And so far, according to an, a, a single tweet by Elon Musk, mm -hmm. we don't know. We haven't heard anything from the patient. We haven't heard anything else. Patient's doing OK. Just want to remind everyone in the monkey trials that Neuralink right. did, there were a lot of serious complications for the monkeys. And I went back and reread the story that Wired published on this, right? These these were not necessarily happening the next day. So I think there's still some time even before we can say these are safe, right? So I, I was sort of thinking that the fact that here we are, TK hours later, the 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 patient is still alive was fairly significant that as a positive sign. Max is sort of suggesting that, well, okay, great, made it through the surgery, but you know, these things tend to pop up down the road. Just how significant is initial survival? Obviously, again, great for the patient, but right. for the I have to say it's very significant. This has been years in the making. This has been Elon promising every year, like, oh yeah, we're gonna have this device in a few months or next year. And finally, literally years after he first promised that. It is in a human brain. That said, other companies that have done similar work have tended to wait a few days before making similar He's not, he's not, but so, this is Elon Musk. You, you knew he wasn't going to wait. This is Elon. Also, this patient is, you know, monkeys can't indicate when there's something wrong. Monkeys try to scratch their heads and mess with mm. the scar sites. I'm not saying that, those surgeries weren't botched. I've read some of the UC Davis reports and maybe there were mistakes made during the surgery, but this is a human patient and hopefully a lot was learned from those monkey experiments. They've done many implants in primates since right. those botched ones. So I think they know the stakes here and this one was super carefully done. Now, on the surgery itself, it is not a human doing the surgery itself, right? It is a robot, correct? Mm. There's a robot assisting in the surgery, but it's not like the patient goes in, the surgeons are like, okay, up to the robot, we're out of here. It's still okay. a lot of okay. humans in the operating room kind of managing the robot. Okay. Well, that's reassuring that, that there, there are humans involved here. Now, listen, Max made it sound like it was all, this is all about safety uh, of the product and not so much, so much about efficacy. But efficacy means when you were talking about whether uh, this person will be able to move a cursor with his or her brain, that sounds like efficacy to me, not to right. safety. So They definitely are interested in safety. That is, to Max's point, the top priority. But it's a little different to drug trials. So device trials don't go through the same phase one, phase two, phase three we might be familiar with from drugs. There are different stages and they're analogous to some of those phase one, two, three but you don't put a device like this in somebody's brain and not know that it's working before you go ahead and implant the next patient. So, But just to be clear, Sarah, there's another phase that they're going to need to, to market. Oh, yeah, there thing. are two more phases. There, we're looking at years of trials. Right, well, and well, nonetheless, well, Elon Musk 
in addition to announcing that the neurons are firing or whatever, whatever he said, whatever that means, announced a product name for this. It's called telepathy. It sounds wonderful. I mean, telepathy sounds yeah. like Star Trek. It does sound pretty good. Well, he's changed the name a few times, so let's see if telepathy sticks, but it's catchy. Well, Matt Max seems to like it, so there we go. I mean, well, I just it's just funny how we've gone from we put this in the guy, the guy is not dead yet, thank God. And it's called telepathy and you know, I feel like we're one tweet away from like pre-order one now. It'll only <laughs> oh, you, be $1,000. Yeah, yeah, it's no, a refundable get, deposit. Your, yeah, put your deposit in. I have a feeling it's not going to be called telepathy when it finally gets released to the market. Somebody's going to put the kibosh on that. But but yeah, it's a great name. So what do stage two, Sarah, and stage three look like? And when do we all go around uh, with these things in our heads? Elon said that he wanted to get it in over 10 patients this year, hmm. which is ambitious, but they could do it, you know, if they did one a month and then they have to analyze all the data, submit that to the FDA. Once the mm -hmm. FDA's reviewed it, then they can start the next set of trials. And then the third set is called the pivotal trials. And those are the most exciting, you know, that it's closest to an actual product. Those will be hundreds, if not thousands of people. But that's probably five years away. Yeah. If everything works as hoped. Now, let me ask you this. You said in a Good scenario. They're able to do about one a month. I guess that's, I'm curious about that. What, 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 is, what is it about these that are so difficult that you can only do one a month? Is it just simply the fact that they are still, these are just baby steps for them and they're being, you have to be super cautious at this, at this stage? I mean, yeah, it, it's the first time they're doing this. You're putting electrodes several millimeters deep into somebody's cortex. You're slicing open their skull to do it. You're cutting into their dura. You want to make sure that the first one goes pretty well before you even try patient two. Then you want to make sure patient two is doing pretty well before you try patient three. And then you need to start actually doing the stuff you're trying to do, get the patient to move cursors and so on, control external devices. Then you have to build all that data, collate the results, present it to the FDA, let the FDA review it. And this is assuming that everything goes well. If you right. have a setback, like some patient who's scarring heals in a weird way, or that could delay everything by months more. Sure. Listen, last question before we let you go here. So Neuralink in the Musk constellation uh, of companies isn't certainly isn't the most valuable or I don't even think towards the the, the, the top end of those. But this is a yeah. big step, right? Where roughly has its it's a privately held company. Where has its valuation roughly been? And what, if anything, does this development do for that valuation? Yeah, I mean, it'll probably increase the valuation. And as to where it is in the constellation of Musk companies, it's toward the bottom but toward the bottom for a Musk company, in this case, Neuralink's worth $3.5 billion. For a medical device company mm. that just implanted its first device in a human, that is huge, just unbelievable. So that's the Musk effect driving up the valuation. And then, you know, if they make it to the next trial, it'll have another outsized jump that'll make every other medical device company jealous. And you're seeing it already. I saw the CEO of a rival company called Synchron. Mm. Last night, I, I just, 
think he couldn't help himself. He had to post a tweet of one of his, I think it was one of his patients, manipulating Pong with his mind, just like, we're still here. Don't forget about us. We've got devices and patients right. too. Still still there. And, and in many ways, as you've reported many times, in many ways, many steps ahead of, of Neuralink, actually, right? Yeah, exactly. Well, in some ways, they're in patients, but in other ways, their device isn't as sophisticated as the Neuralink device. Neuralink has a thousand electrodes, more than a thousand on its device, and Synchron doesn't have that many. So you can go back and forth and debate the pros and cons. But yeah, they were in patients well before Neuralink. And way, they're way behind on names because, like, I mean, because <laughs> a normal sober minded medical device company would not just like go around, like, you know, marketing a highly speculative brand name on their, you know, very much in development. Maybe it works, maybe it's safe. We don't know yet product, but. Elon, he'll it's difficult he'll go to ahead say. and do that. And, right. that. and investors, you know, for better or worse, they like that. They love it. Okay. Sarah, listen, thank you very much for being with us. We will have you on as soon as we know more, as soon as you know more about uh, our first patient here. Sounds good. Thanks for having me. From Silicon Valley to Wall Street. The promise and perils of artificial intelligence are playing out on the world stage. But what will the next phase of AI adoption look like? Which companies from big tech to startups will dominate? And where do the risks and unintended consequences lie? I'm Emily Chang. Join me at Bloomberg Tech in San Francisco, May 9th, to answer many of the industry's burning questions. Alongside SNAP's Evan Spiegel, Xbox President Sarah Bond, OpenAI's Brad Lightcap, top researcher Dr. Fei-Fei Li of Stanford, and many more. More details and just a few tickets left at Bloomberg.com slash TechSF. Max and I are now joined by Kurt Wagner, a tech reporter here at Bloomberg covering social media and the author of the soon-to-be-released book, Battle for the Bird, about uh, Twitter and the battle for control of the company. Kurt, I know there's something Taylor about Taylor Swift and deep fake porn, and then Musk's people came back and they nuked, they hit the nuclear option, and you suddenly couldn't search at all for her. What the he- what the heck happened? Yeah, I mean, you you had all the the ingredients right there of exactly what happened. So the end of last week, we saw that there were some there was deep fake porn of the most arguably the most famous woman in the world right now, Taylor Swift, circulating on X. And this violates several of the company's policies, first and foremost. And so what we saw was naturally people seeking it out, sharing it, commenting on it. Outrage, of course, from from Swifties and other fans of, of not only Taylor, but just people who realize that this is not a good thing to be happening on any platform. And then you saw the companies sort of scrambling to try and figure out what to do about this, right? And David, you mentioned they ultimately, for a couple of days, literally blocked people from uh, having search results when they searched for Taylor Swift's name. Is sort of happy to get into sort of how extreme that is. Right. Why, why did they take such an extreme step? Why could they not be more precise in their in their crackdown on this? So you do something like this when you're having trouble cleaning up all of the stuff on your own, right? This is a this is I would consider a last resort or close to a last resort. And to me. The fact that they simply had to block people from even searching for Taylor Swift is a sign that they were not able to get 
the problem under control on their own. And so they had to take a, a drastic measure like this. I've covered Twitter mm. for 10 years. I don't remember this happening before in terms of the search ban, certainly not as it relates to a high profile user like this. And that tells you what then about the current state of X? Well, that the trust and safety function over there is not operating in the way that it was before Elon took over and that it's not operating very smoothly, right? I mean, presumably how something like this would normally be handled is it would be flagged to the company, you know, oftentimes maybe even by the, not Taylor directly, but probably her team, right? They'd have a partnerships contact at the company that they would go to. Mm. Um, the company would not only immediately take down the original tweet, but they would probably take those photos or videos and and start to scan the rest of the service for either identical matches to them mm. or other photos or videos that look very similar. Maybe it's the same photo, but it's been a watermark has been added or something like that, right? And they would sort of automate the process of taking the stuff down as quickly as possible. What we know is that the original content was up, I believe, for something like 17 hours. It, it's it's uh, now down. They ultimately the original down. content is now down. It's now down. That's right. That's, and they've and to be clear, starting last night, so Monday night, they started letting people search for Taylor Swift again. So they feel like they've gotten the process or the, excuse me, the problem under control, but it took several days. On that, you mentioned the NFL game. The NFL game is, as all of basically mankind knows, Taylor Swift is dating uh, the tight end for the Kansas City Chiefs, Travis Kelsey. The Kansas City, Kansas City Chiefs played on Sunday in the semifinals uh, of, of the NFL playoffs. They won. They're going to the Super Bowl. So this ban, though, on Taylor Swift searches is happening as this playoff game, this Kansas City Chiefs game is going on. And Kurt, the NFL has been, right, one of the few bright spots for X of late uh, in terms of generating buzz and, and content and all that. Horrible timing, no? Terrible timing. I mean, imagine how many people are watching that game Sunday and see, you know, CBS cut away to a shot of Taylor Swift jumping around in the, you know, the Kelsey box or whatever and and want to go to X and search about it or to talk about it or whatever, right? And, and suddenly a huge part of the service is not working for that exact use case. Kurt, so the nuclear option, somebody there at X hit the button. There was a very, very large button that just says nuke and they hit it. Uh, and... Taylor Swift disappeared from uh, X for uh, basically a day. Is that uh, what we're going to expect going forward? Is that the blueprint then uh, as this comes up in coming days and weeks, including perhaps during the Super Bowl in two weeks? I mean, that that can't be the long-term blueprint, right? That's just not a good strategy. It's not a good business model. It's, it's, it's a bad way to handle this, but it's what you do when you're desperate. Um, so my hope is that there were a lot of learnings from the past couple of days that the team that is there figured out, okay, you know, here's what we did wrong or, or you know, maybe add some uh, new level of kind of monitoring for some high profile accounts. As you mentioned, the Super Bowl is, is two weeks from now. If, if this stuff starts to circulate again, like, will they have made enough of a change <clears throat> in the next two weeks? I'd be surprised. So it, it may be that we see something like this happen again. What I will point out mm. real quick is that they did say, and they're they're announcing this very intentionally this week, they're going to open a trust and safety office in Austin, Texas. Ah. They claim they're going to hire 100 full-time employees to, now 100 is a small amount to be clear, but full-time employees at X, 100 is actually a pretty decent size. 
And they're announcing this because Linda Yaccarino is going to be speaking before Congress on Wednesday about protecting children online. Is it actually meaningful or is it just simply uh, PR and spin um, for this appearance? I think it's more PR than it is meaningful. Well, what would a, what would a reasonable number be for a task like that, Kurt? <sighs> well, it's tough because so many of these companies like Meta, I think, was touting tens of thousands of content moderators, but most of them are contractors, right? They're like basically just sifting through this this never-ending wheel of terrible content and clicking allow or not allow or whatever. Having 100 full-time employees working on this could be meaningful if those people are, you know, writing policy, mm. uh, handling high-profile accounts like Taylor Swift, I need to see what these people's jobs description are going to be before I can really say how meaningful it is. But okay, but what if you are a much lesser public personality and ha do not have the influence or the deep pockets that Taylor Swift has when you if you too are targeted in something like this, what what is your fate? I think you're you're in trouble in that situation quite frankly. I mean, if it takes 17 hours and several days to to figure this out for Taylor Swift, you know, what chance does someone who has 100 followers or, or, or maybe someone like who's Matt. not even on X, right? But yet their their face or their content or their body has been posted to mm. X, right? They, they might not even really be aware that it's mm. up there. This is not just an X problem. So I don't want to continue, you know, we're talking about X because of the situation over the last couple of days. But like this idea of, of, you know, women in particular having their bodies shared online without their consent, like this happens on websites all over the place and, it, and it's not okay, right? But you just hold a higher standard to some of these larger companies because they have so much power, so much money, so much influence. You hope that the metas and the X's of the world can get this right because if they can't get it right, what kind of hope do we have for, for anybody? Yeah, we should say there's been reporting suggesting this was a Microsoft tool that was used to create this or mm. at least create some of these images. There have been Google Alphabet has had its own battles with basically deep celebrity deep fakes. So, yeah, I mean, a lot of big companies, a lot of big companies that have, you know, gigantic, vast teams of people you would think trying to stop this stuff have also struggled, but they just haven't struggled in such a spectacularly comic way. The, yeah. the, the banning of Taylor Swift. Also, the risk isn't just like getting sued by Taylor Swift. It's like upsetting your users. I, I don't know if other people have noticed this, but like sometimes you're, you're just searching for something on Twitter mm -hmm. and there will just be like porn that, that'll just like find its way in that has found its way past the filters and mm. into your feed. Like it's very, and, and again, when you're talking about like the Taylor Swift fandom, I don't probably don't have to tell people, people feel very strongly about it. Like, I don't think they want to see normal people don't want to see Taylor Swift revenge porn. And that might be enough to turn, you know, large numbers of people off of X permanently. And advertisers, Max, right? Like we, we could have a hour long conversation about advertisers fleeing, X and Elon, but this type of thing does not help them at all because Coca-Cola, Apple, Disney, pick your brand. The last thing they want to do is be handing over their money to a platform that is, you know, known for Taylor Swift's right, deepfake. Right, right. <laughs> well, well, it's quite the advertising deck. Uh, it's yeah. like Linda on Madison yeah. Avenue being like, listen, we've got some great products for you. We've yeah. got the NFL. Yeah. We've got deepfake porn on one side. Exactly. Yeah. Well, yeah. Kurt, we will see how they do in two weeks when the Kansas City Chiefs, Travis Kelsey, and Taylor Swift take yep. on the San Francisco 49ers, and we'll see how X holds up then. Thanks for joining us. Yeah, my pleasure. Thank you. 
The countdown has begun. From May 14th to 16th, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Qatar Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections, gain unique insights and uncover valuable opportunities in one of the world's most rapidly rising regions. Request your invite for this exclusive event at QatarEconomicForum.com. We are now joined by our ace Tesla reporter, Dana Hall. Hello, Dana. Thanks for having me. Okay, so last week, and we previewed this on the show, uh, Tesla released uh, fourth quarter earnings, and the market gave it, I said earlier, thumbs down. I actually think they gave it two thumbs down. The stock cratered towards the end of last week. Actually, in all of the S&P 500 index, there are only two companies year to date that have fallen more than Tesla, and they are two companies admired in major crises. Um I know the stock is bouncing back some now, but still, it seems like this was a flop. Dana, tell us, why did it fall so much? Was it something that was actually in the earnings report, or was it something that was said that unnerved investors so much? Well, it was both. The January earnings call is all about forward-looking guidance, and this was a company that did not really give any guidance. They just said that things were going to be lower and that they're in between two waves of growth. Tesla is currently between two major growth waves. We're focused on making sure that our next growth wave, driven by next-gen vehicle, energy storage, full self-driving and other projects, is executed as well as possible. And, you know, there was not a number, like how many cars are they going to deliver in 2024? They didn't say 2 million. They didn't say 2.5 million. They just said that growth could be lower and uh, that they're in between two waves. And that was sort of unnerving. Um and then as the call went on, like things just sort of, you know, Elon was very like sunny and optimistic and upbeat in terms of his tone, but the lack of guidance was really disturbing. And uh, yeah, the stock is now down 22% so far in 2024. You know, Max, my take is, as I was looking at this briefly, was that you have a company in Tesla that has long been this great growth stock, right? All stocks, investors see stocks in two categories. They're a growth stock or a value stock. And a growth stock is uh, a stock that you are buying in anticipation of great growth going forward. In the last few years, you know, around 60% a year, that is slowed to 20%. And that seems to be roughly what people are forecasting going forward. So I guess, you know, when you're valued as much as it was, $800 billion at one point, not too recently, I, I guess this is just sort of like a gravity moment here, right? Yeah, I mean, I think that's, and, and Elon himself kind of said that, you know, he he sort of in attempting, as Dana says, to kind of lower expectations said, you know, at a certain point, you know, the growth's going to, like we, the law of large numbers comes in and and you can't grow 50% a year. I think that it's part of what's going on here is it's not just, that Elon Musk is is giving these predictions or non-predictions that are dour. But when he's trying to tell the growth story, it's getting harder and harder to kind of conceptualize. Like during the call, he talked about Optimus, the uh, Tesla robot, as this kind of be-all, end-all. He said it was going to be the most valuable product of all time. And on the call itself, you had like one of Elon's own employees kind of jumping in and saying, well, the big problem is for now, uh, we can't figure out anything to do with Optimus. So there's oh. kind of this gap between Elon's version of what the company is mm. and the kind of Wall Street version of the company. Do we believe that that employee is still uh, employed at <laughs> Tesla? 
it it did not sound good because <laughs> there was you know when you're getting into an argument with the boss on the call, it's uh, well, there's a pretty big gap between the greatest product of all time and we have no idea to, what to do with this thing. I think what's really interesting is that okay, so Tesla fundamentally is a car company. Most of their revenue comes from cars. However, mm. they don't really have a car right now. Like the Cybertruck is barely in production. I mean, the Y is this bestseller, but like the Y is getting old. So you're not going to see this like big wave of growth until they come out with their next generation platform, which they basically said would be like late 2025, maybe. So in the meantime, what do you tell Wall Street about? You talk about, oh, we're an AI company. We're a robotics company. We've got this Optimus robot. We've got this Dojo computer, which is now a long shot. Um, We have an energy business. So they're going to, they have to talk about their other products because the core automotive product is just like, you know, they barely talked about the Cybertruck on the call at all. I mean, it was, it was like a huge omission. But having said that, I do see on my uh, Tesla earnings uh, bingo card here, uh, the Cybertruck box was ticked. And I want to talk about this bingo card. I, I, I missed this last week. I, I didn't play. Uh, and I'm oh, a little disappointed. But it seems like that we came close to getting bingo, but came up short here. Is that right? We didn't quite, we couldn't quite pull it off. No. And I will say that Elon Musk's, you know, frantic, uh, mm. you know, citing all the future products, trying to come up with some kind of growth story was gold for bingo because we had Dojo, we had Optimus, we had, you know, demand for Teslas yeah. are unlimited. This was good for bingo, but there was a... Bad for the stock. Good for bingo, bad for the yeah, stock, which yeah. is which has been a hypothesis of mine for many years. There are many hedge years. funds all but, over the building models that, you know, correlate. But I'll also correlate. say this, and I, I don't know, Dan, if you, ha- if you played a hand in formulating this bingo card here... I, I feel like it was slightly rigged for us not to get it. I mean, Audibly Puff's joint what? was only put on the card to block. There was no chance he was going to Audibly okay. Puff a joint. No, 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 no. Hold on. Also, <laughs> digging our own grave. I mean, th- those were the two that blocked you guys hitting bingo. He wasn't going to repeat digging our own grave. You guys rigged this thing. It well, was rigged. No, but he repeats himself all. The, he repeats himself all the time. I mean, that's the thing about Elon. It's he, as uh, as our former colleague Sean O'Kane used to say, he's like a comedian practicing his bit. Like he says a lot of stock phrases over and over and over again. But but I, I want to direct your attention to I believe it's N five. Uh, <laughs> right. Production is hard, which is something that Elon Musk has reiterated over and over and over again uh, recently. And he he very easily could have said that on the uh, on, on this call. You don't but, need right. audibly puff joint. And I want to remind you, audibly oh, puff joint oh. was realistic. All right. no, uh, no, you know, I regret to. First to of all, <laughs> can you give me my bingo card back? All right, let's end it there. Thank you for listening to Elon Inc. And thanks to Dana and Max. Great to be here. Always a pleasure. This episode was produced by Stacey Wong. Naomi Shaven and Rehan Harmansi are our senior editors. The idea for this very show also came from Rehan. Lake Maples handles engineering, and we get special editing assistance from Jeff Grocott. Our supervising producer is Magnus Henriksen. Huge thanks to Angel Rocio and Joel Weber. The Elon Inc. theme is written and performed by Taka Yasuzawa and Alex Sugiyura. Sage Bauman is the head of Bloomberg Podcast and our executive producer. I am David Papadopoulos. If you have a minute, rate and review our show. It'll help other listeners find us. See you next week.
From Silicon Valley to Wall Street, the promise and perils of artificial intelligence are playing out on the world stage. But what will the next phase of AI adoption look like? Which companies from big tech to startups will dominate? And where do the risks and unintended consequences lie? I'm Emily Chang. Join me at Bloomberg Tech in San Francisco, May 9th, to answer many of the industry's burning questions. Alongside SNAP's Evan Spiegel, Xbox president Sarah Bond, OpenAI's Brad Lightcap, top researcher Dr. Fei-Fei Li of Stanford, and many more. More details and just a few tickets left at Bloomberg.com slash TechSF.